Morning, everybody. Great to see you. Every single person, every single person will face trials and struggles. Each of us will be beset by the painful and frightening storms of life. In fact, the Bible promises as much. Two experts on life and suffering. I don't think anybody knows more about life and suffering than Job and Jesus. Job chapter 5, humans are born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward, talking about like a campfire. And in Matthew 6, Jesus said, each day has trouble enough of its own. The question isn't, will we face storms? The question of the Christian life is, what will we learn from the storms that will surely come? Gordon MacDonald wrote a book, uh, The Life God Blesses, and in that book he describes a meeting he had in the 1990s. Um, he met a fellow who was a high-ranking member of the African National Congress in South Africa, and, uh, and, and Gordon says this, I'm going to read from his book, I was profoundly impressed by the man's understanding of African history and politics and his insight into the challenges facing his nation. I asked, where did you get your training? I expected to hear the name of some famous university and was amazed at the reply, I trained on Robben Island. Robin was the notorious offshore prison where the apartheid regime sent its most troublesome opponents. My new friend continued. Every few years, the government would search out all the incendiary young black leaders. They would sweep them out of sight and eventually dump them on Robben Island. But for us, it was a profitable strategy because that was where we got our education from Mandela and the others. You see, all of us who came to Robben Island came straight from university. We were angry. We were ready to kill the white man, any white man. In prison, we lost our names. We were only numbers to the guards, and they kept their guns pointed at us all the time. Each morning, we marched to the rock quarry, and in the evening, we marched back. The days always belonged to the guards, but the nights were different. The nights belonged to us. During the evening, we who were young sat with the old men, and we listened. We listened while they told us their histories, their tribal languages, their dreams for the black person in South Africa. But most important, Mandela taught us that you can never accomplish anything as long as you hate your enemy. Hate his politics, hate the evil behind those politics, hate the policies that put you in prison, but never hate the person. It takes your strength away. You stopped hating? I asked, still reading from McDonald. Well, not right away, the man said. It took me almost five years to forgive. Five years of learning with the old men. But when I did forgive, I was a different person. I knew I had forgiven when I could go to Holy Communion on Friday and invite the guard to lay down his gun, come and receive the sacrament with me. So that's the answer to your question. That's where I got my training. Close quote. In his darkest hour, that man learns. He goes to the school of suffering and he graduates with a doctorate on forgiveness. How did that happen? It's simple. It's profound, but it's simple. He was inspired by people who met and trusted God in the midst of the storm. It takes strength to forgive. And you can only feel authentic strength like that when you know firsthand that God is God and that He is working good, that He is working in ways beyond our comprehension and for our ultimate benefit. And the key entrance portal to that kind of strength in the middle of the storm is humility. Look at the difference. Look at the difference. Before Robin Island, our political leader was an angry young man. There were legitimate grievances in his world, but he magnified them with hate. He had, look what he had. He had freedom of movement. He had an education at university. He thought he knew everything, like every young man does, and he was ready to kill without thought. When the genuine hurricane overwhelmed his life, he lost all that. He lost freedom. He lost formal education, possessions. His name, he lost everything. Now, 
at that point, we expect him to become more angry, right? That would be the human norm, to become more self-righteous, more angry. But there in Robin, he learned how to learn. He became willing to literally sit at the feet of older Christians who had been through hell. And that humility changed him. It opened his heart to God's strength and peace. Remember the quote from Job? Let's read it again along with the next two verses. Job 5, we read verse 7. Humans are born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. However, if I were you, I would appeal to God and would present my case to him. He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Now, by the way, the guy speaking here is Job's pal Eliphaz. Let me just give you a little context on Eliphaz. Um, He is sometimes wrong in the big picture, but he's usually spot on with specifics, okay? And here, Eliphaz is right on target. He's he's telling you, do do you want profit from the storms that are raging and will thunder in your life? Would Would you like to be ready to stand on scriptural truth like that, no matter the circumstances? Would you like your eyes open to see the great and unsearchable things that God is doing? If so, then you should present your case to God. And I recommend this path for doing it. Sit at the feet of an old man named Habakkuk. Nothing against Job or Nelson Mandela, but I know of no better place to learn, to to prepare, to think, to pray, to present your case to God than at the feet of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 3, we meet the God who is in the storm. We, We learn how to engage with Him and let His truth comfort and enrich and deepen and bless us. It is a remarkable education, Habakkuk chapter 3. Come with me. I'll show you. Open your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 3. While you're finding Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a brief primer on the context. Habakkuk began his book by crying out for justice. Lord, the wicked surround the righteous. Justice comes out perverted. He's in essence saying, are you God? And God answers, yes. Yes, look among the nations, God says. Observe, be astonished, wonder. I'm doing things in your time you wouldn't believe if you were told. And then he actually told Habakkuk one of the things he was doing. He said, um, he said I'm, I'm going to take care of the injustice you're worried about in your society by raising up the, the Chaldeans, he called them, because that was the area. Later, we would call them the Babylonians. This is written before they rose up. Uh, I'm going to raise up these Babylonians, and they're going to wipe out your entire country. And Habakkuk's like, whoa, 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 whoa. wait a minute. Okay, so you're God, that's nice, but that doesn't sound good. So his second question comes in, are you working good? And God answers with five woes. Five five beautiful, painful pictures that show how he has woven his justice into the very fabric of life. And those woes, that, that God walking through, this is how I work justice, that changes Habakkuk. And he ends up ending chapter two by realizing, and starting chapter three by realizing, oh, I, I don't, I don't want justice, I want mercy. Along with justice, Habakkuk recognizes, as we all should, that he needs to, he needs to receive and give mercy. That's the context, you got it? Habakkuk wrestles with God, he discovers the Almighty to be just that. He is Almighty God and he is working Almighty good. Now, God caps his education with a prophetic vision of God in the storm. We're going to read the entire vision. Go to verse 3 of chapter 3. God comes from Teman. The Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now, Selah is a, is a word we don't fully understand everything about it, but, but here's what we do know. It's used in Hebrew poetry, and it, it's used for a pause. It's probably a musical notation, but it's almost always used after a really profound or shocking thought. So it probably means stop and think about that. 
So, so right here, God comes. Selah, right? Okay. God comes from uh, Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him. Pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the mountains. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress. The tent curtains the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. That, that's a, a phrase, taking the oil skin, a covering off of a wooden or bone bow that keeps it fresh, and then taking it off so that you can bend it and get ready to use it. You, you took the sheath off from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. We'll come back to that oath. Say la. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation, trample down the nations in wrath. That was a favorite clause of some of your forebears. Um, he is trampling down the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. Yep, that's it. Um, you come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. By the way, the word strip there could be translated and maybe should be translated as split. So you, you cut him open from, from foot to neck. Selah. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. Stop there. This vision lays out what God is going to do to the Babylonians in particular and to oppressors in general. And this is a severe and beautiful picture. Now, I, I know some of you understandably cringe when I say this is beautiful. You, you lean to the person next to you and you say, Chitty May, can you believe he said that? I mean, bodies cut open, stem to stern, and he calls it beautiful? I mean, he even wrote it right down there in the notes where anybody can read it. I declare, right? I, I understand. And, and, and sometimes I share your squeamishness, but, but nonetheless, God's serious justice is beautiful. How many of you saw the film Taken, the, the, the movie Taken? How many of you, raise your hands if you've ever seen the movie Taken. Okay, most of you have. Um, when the bad guys kidnapped the girls, what did your soul cry out for? Justice, right? So when Liam Neeson comes storming in and unbelievably, miraculously saves his daughter, do you mind that he had to crack a few heads to do it? No, not at all. You're thrilled. Jana and I saw that film in a crowded theater. It was one of the only times I've ever had this happen. The movie's not even over, and the whole crowd burst out, in cheering and applause when he shot the bad guy between the eyes, right? I have a very particular set of skills. That's what, that's what she learned about her dad in that storm. Likewise, we discover the beauty and love of our Father when He takes us successfully through the dark storms and He meets out His justice. Now, look at the grammar in chapter 3. There's a very interesting and, and strange thing that occurs here. Habakkuk, in chapter 3, he switches back and forth between present and past tense. If you're writing a novel, this is considered very bad form, right? But if you're a prophet, this is completely acceptable. Look, a prophet 
He's given glimpses of what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And, and sometimes they all run together. It's not clear exactly where each piece falls in, in time. So think of it like this. The prophet is, is given a, a, a scope, a spyglass by God, and he's looking out across a series. Whoa, that exit sign's really big. He's looking out across a series of waves, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're on a, a boat and you're looking out across a series of waves, you, you can't, with a magnifier, you can't really tell where one crest ends and another begins. They, they kind of go together, right? And that's what happens to the prophets. So they would speak in one tense and then they would switch to another. It, it's on purpose. It's a device they use to show the universality of what God has given them to say. Now, the poor Bible translators, they understandably have a really hard time with this shift, so you're going to see some of your translations will list this entire chapter all in, in past tense. Others will list it all in present tense. It's no big deal either way. We just need to understand this text is covering the crest of many, many waves. It's covering a lot of time and space. The secret is to make sure we write each wave, past and present and future. So let's start with God's work in history. Uh, chapter 3, verse 3 from the ESV. They translated in past tense. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, most Bible scholars think this refers to the past season where Yahweh rescued Israel, set them free from slavery in Egypt, established his covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. That's why the headline on the right side of our notes says, God's work in history. Plague went before Israel back then, securing their freedom. God's very glory shone before Israel. He shook the earth. He dried up seas and rivers. God made all the nations tremble as he came to fulfill his word to Abraham and, and formed his people Israel. Remember, never forget this, all the nations, unique in all of ancient history, all the nations were offered the chance to join Israel. But most refused. They said, no, thank you. Even people that had nominal ties to Israel, like, like Midian mentioned in our text, they refused Yahweh, and thus when his justice comes upon them later, they tremble in their tents. This is what God did for Israel way back in the beginning through a series of wildernesses. And, and remembering what God has done is a critical part of dealing with present storms. Like Habakkuk, David, David has a series of long discussions with God. Um, and, and, and often David's prayers are full of pain and displeasure over the course of, of, God's, uh, of God's plans. For, for example, look, uh, Psalm 143, a psalm of David. Lord, hear my prayer. In your faithfulness, listen to my plea. And in your righteousness, answer me. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one alive is righteous in your sight. The enemy has pursued me, crushing me to the ground, making me live in darkness like those long dead. My spirit is weak within me, and my heart is overcome with dismay. Now, that's a storm, but there's more. When, when you examine the Psalms, you, you always find a turning point in every single lament. That turning point is, is usually when David stops and he remembers all about what God has done in the past. So, so we read verse 4, right? My spirit is weak within me. My heart is overcome with dismay. Now look at the turning point, verse 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you have done. I reflect on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. I'm like a parched land before you. And what does he say then, everybody? Selah, right? Think about that. Do you see how this works? You remember God's work in history, and you begin to crest a wave, musing on God's covenants and fulfilled promises. It gives you a new perspective. You sit at the feet of old people, and you learn in the storm. 
W. Philip Keller wrote a classic study of Psalm 23, another one of David's psalms. Look what Keller writes. Uh, He says, I know of nothing which so stimulates my faith in my heavenly Father as to look back and reflect on his faithfulness to me in every crisis, every chilling circumstance of life. Again and again, I have been conscious of the Good Shepherd's guidance through dark days and deep valleys. Because he has led me through without fear before, he can do it again and again and again. In this knowledge, fear fades and tranquility of heart and mind takes its place. All God's people said, tranquility comes because God is. He didn't only work in the past, he is present. He's powerful. He's not silent. That's why why Habakkuk also zeroes in on God's overpowering presence. Go go back to verse 9. Verse 9. You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains see you and shudder, a downpour of water sweeps by, the deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high, sun and moon stand still in their lofty resonance at the flash of your flying arrows at the brightness of your shining spear. Everything we think of as massive and immovable is all like paper before God. The mountains writhe under his power, the deep waters on earth and under the earth roar up, the sun and moon stand still and it's no big deal. Habakkuk is being reminded just who his partner is in this storm. God. And God is present. He is completely eminent. And, and because God's also all-powerful, Habakkuk has nothing to fear. Think of it like this. Watch this goofy little video, home video somebody made. They were on a tour in Antarctica. Do you see the little penguin? He is just skimming and swimming for his life as an entire pod of, of killer whales follows him. There he is. Poor little penguin. You see the ice shelf in the background. And where, where did he go? Oh, did they get him? Where'd the, where's the penguin? Guy's looking. What? He's, whoa, there he is in the boat. And there's, did you notice somebody has sandals on in Antarctica? There's always one. Every group's got one. Um, and he just stays in the boat. Hey, how you guys doing? You got, you got anything to eat? Maybe, maybe some killer whale? You, um, you, uh, hey, and then the orcas come up. You know, they're like, hey, that was ours. We think we're so tough and we're so mean. And they come up, oh, crud, we can't do anything with them there. We'll go eat some defenseless seals or something. So, uh, and the penguin just stays in the boat and he just laughs with his new friends and has a great time. Okay. <laughs> because the powerful humans are there, the little penguin finds safety. The predators have no hold on him. Almighty God is present in our boat. Again, the shepherd, Mr. Keller, he nails it. He says, let come what may. Storms may break about me. Predators may attack. The rivers of reverses may threaten to inundate me. But because he is in the situation with me, I shall not fear. Amen. And it does not exhaust God to be our ever-present help. In fact, all it takes is a word from him. That's displayed in the phraseology of verse 9. How is it storms can be serious and beautiful? Because we see God's work in history. We, we, we sense his overpowering presence and we hear God's all-powerful word. Look, look, look up here. The Hebrew phrase, shibuat motet omer. Shibuat motet omer is what my Bible renders. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Poor translators who try to render this into English, they got a really difficult job because that phrase does not come into our language. In fact... In fact, over the centuries of the English language, that, that has been translated 100 different ways into, into our tongue. It's that difficult a phrase to translate. But the thing that matters most is clear. This, this word, omer, omer is, is the big idea, and that's really clear. It's only used in Hebrew poetry. It means a discourse or, or a word. Um, 
actually, it's not all that different from, do you remember the early 21st century? There was that, there was that fad in music that whenever you heard a line you liked in a, in a song, you said, word, word up. Remember that? Oh, it was insane. But do you remember that? Word up. And that's kind of what this is right here. The word concept. God is describing how he achieves everything he's done. Word, just by a word. He says one little oath and everything's changed. Here's how, same concept, Zephaniah renders it this way. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts word for joy over you. God sings his words over you who are his, and nothing can stop his word. Amen? That concept of God changing everything by his word, it's also a big part of how the Bible depicts the future, especially the future establishment of Messiah's kingdom. You see, God has future plans, and his future plans are also established by his word. Go to to verse 14. You pierce his head with his own spears, the oppressor. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if they're ready to secretly devour the weak. Oh, they have no idea what they've stepped in. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. Now, this has reference to Israel's past, but Habakkuk is also seeing into the future about what's going to happen to Babylon, and even further than that. Get this. About 80 years after this conversation between Habakkuk and God, the prophet Daniel received a really similar word from God. Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 26. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one, that's the Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be a war. Desolations are decreed. And then verse 27. He will make, he, in context of Daniel 9, this time about somebody that's later called the Antichrist, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he'll put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on that desolator. Daniel says that God is going to do work that is powerful by his word. Decree. Decree. Verse 26 tells us that the Messiah is going to be cut off from earth for a time. And then there's a destroyer who's going to come and he's going to try and kill all of God's people. But his desolation plan will itself be destroyed. Each of these is by God's decree. By the way, um, Daniel 9.26 has occurred. The Messiah did go to heaven. He ascended into heaven according to God's plan. He will return to fulfill verse 27, to kill evil, to kill Satan and death and establish his kingdom. And he's going to do it all by his word, by his decree. Isn't that awesome? And if we, if we stop and think, Selah, about God's future plans, the way Daniel did, the way Habakkuk does, we get excited. When we look at the real future, we focus less about our our particular momentary pains and we focus more on Jesus, the Messiah, who establishes a kingdom of justice and mercy forever. The storms of life are changed when we see God's work in history. When we stop and look at His his presence, His his words, His his future plans, it it changes us. Habakkuk sees and, and he lets us see God's work in history. God's overpowering presence in the boat with us, his all-powerful word and his future plans. And that reality changes the prophet's perspective. Habakkuk finds himself transformed by this process. Don't don't misunderstand. The prophet's circumstances haven't changed. He is not pain-free. Far from it. He still waits, and he waits still for further pain. 
There's no pretense by him or the Lord that, that this is going to be fun. Look at verse 16, next verse in our text. I heard and I trembled with him. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. God's still bringing in the Babylonians. Habakkuk understands. He sees the justice and mercy that is built into the whole scenario. And because he wrestled with God and listened to him, Habakkuk understands the beauty, the severe mercy of what God is doing. But none of that changes the very real hurt that is coming. 316 is a painful place to be. It makes one's insides quiver. It makes your lip tremble. And yet, 316 is not only about pain and fear. There is a there's a strange supernatural rest that is involved in this kind of waiting. Look, look, look up here. You, you see the verbal uh, must wait quietly in verse 16? The phrase is one word in the Hebrew, anuvah, anuvha. Anuvha is a, it's a really old word. In fact, there, there are a couple of the experts I read who think that this may be one of the oldest words ever coined in humanity's history. Um, it's a word that means to, to rest to, to, root, to settle down, to, to go into a partnership with, with somebody in peace. If you have ever, and I know many of you have, if you have ever faced a coming terror in your life and wrestled with God like Habakkuk, you probably understand Anuvha. There's a remarkable peace that comes when the Lord reminds us of his presence and his word and his actions, past, present, and future. There's, there's a there's a complete change of perspective that comes on you when you partner with the God who is here in the storm with you. Even in the pain, even when you're waiting years for the final victory, that you find yourself rooting in him, resting in anuvha. 1974, Tim Hansel was mountaineering. He loved to climb, and he had a bad fall. Hundreds of feet he fell in an icy crevasse, Miraculously, and this is miraculous, Tim lived and in fact could, could walk again. The bad news is that he broke dozens of bones, including every bone in his vertebra, thoracic and lumbar. Every one of his discs was squished to, to obliteration, didn't exist anymore. Tim, for the next 45 years that he lived, he lived with continuous and massive pain. He wrote a book about it that's based on his personal journal. And in that journal, he wrote this. I looked up the word root. had to be anuvha that he looked up. It means to be or become firmly established, to plant or fix deeply as in the earth. God is teaching me through all this to rediscover the substance of my strength and my song. Perhaps this is an unusual opportunity to discover who I really am. Close quote. That's what Habakkuk means by anuvha. He is rooting patiently in the Lord and it changes him. Uh, a Scottish theologian named, uh, named John Bailey also, I think, really understood this rooting that happens while we wait in pain. Uh, he wrote a great book called A Diary of Private Prayer. Bailey wrote this quote. I, I squeezed it into your notes. I ruined the spacing, but I wanted to get it in there. He said, let me use disappointment as material for what, everybody? Patience. Let me use success as material for thankfulness. Let me use trouble as material for perseverance. Let me use danger as material for courage. Let me use reproach as material for long-suffering. Let me use praise as material for humility. Let me use pleasures as material for temperance. And let me use pain as material for what, everyone? 
endurance. Anuv ha. With all that in mind, Habakkuk confidently declares that he will exult and rejoice. Let's read our last verses, verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, he's just described an absolute, absolute economic and life collapse. Yet, I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights for the choir director on a stringed instrument. One of our elders and I were talking recently about this and how we agree, each of us thinks that this is the most inspiring paragraph ever written in all of human literature. Now think about this beautiful statement for a moment. Selah, think about it. Given that Habakkuk is a blunt, honest person, and he is every bit of that, how can the prophet say this? How can he legitimately declare that he will anuv ha even in the face of total disaster when every aspect of his society and life fall apart? The book shows us a threefold answer. First, Habakkuk can celebrate because God gives himself. Look, look at verse 19. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. How about that? God himself is directly granting strength to Habakkuk. I was walking with one of our boys uh, one summer. We were in Colorado. We were on a, on a pretty steep mountain trail, probably one I shouldn't have chosen, actually. But we were, we were on a hike to go up to the top of a waterfall, and he and I wanted to see all the beauty. And, of course, poor little guy, his legs are short, and he's taken five steps to my one, right? And it's not very long in our hike before he, he's really tired. So I did what parents do. I picked the kiddo up, and I put him on my shoulders. And we just kept walking, and we were just silent. It was really quiet. We were just enjoying the quiet, and we hiked a long ways until we were actually almost up to the top of where we were heading. And suddenly I heard his voice by my ear, and this little kid said, This is great! I love hiking! (laughs) Now, why could the small-legged one say, I love hiking? Because his father was his strength. Similarly, you and I don't go on any trail where God does not carry us. Dr. Ironside said it best, I think, 100 years ago, he wrote this. He said, how great the difference in the opening and the closing of the burden of Habakkuk. He begins as a man bewildered and confused who is filled with questions and perplexities. He closes as one who has found the answer to all his questions and the satisfying portion of his soul in God himself. This is most blessed. Amen. How could the prophet make this majestic declaration? Because God gives himself and because God gives him the joy of restoration. That's what's going on in verse 18. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is saved in his soul. Any material pain is still real and likely is not going to get any better. But his immaterial soul, his self is restored by God. You, you, you know this feeling probably. If you, If you've ever spent a night crying in real pain to God, you have very likely experienced this. There's that point, there's that turning point where you're just, you're crying and you're hurt and you're angry. And and then through the tears, you eventually stumble in and you turn to God's word. And you begin to read. And there you begin to remember his past protection and his future promise. And you root down in his presence. And the next morning, I know this didn't make any sense, but the next morning... What do you feel? You feel remarkably restored, right? It, it, it doesn't make any sense from a human point of view, but you feel joy. 
David summarized this experience beautifully in Psalm 30. I don't have time for the whole psalm. Let's just read verses 5 and 11. Why don't you join me on the underlined portions? Um, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. You turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with what, everybody? Gladness. Remember Tim Hansel, the guy that lived... 45 years with back pain beyond what any of us have ever experienced. Tim said the following in his book, You Gotta Keep Dancing, which he took that title from Psalm 30, by the way, You've Turned My Lament into Dancing. He said, The joy which I began to discover was radically different from the kind of joy that is happiness I'd known before. Above all else, this joy did not depend on circumstances. In fact, it was cited most frequently in Scripture as being in spite of circumstances, as in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. I realized, though the difficulties were undeniably real and would remain so for the rest of this life. I had the opportunity to choose a new freedom and joy because God gives restoration. All God's people said. In response to that quote, as we were talking through pulpit team, Cindy Sharp of our team sent me this note. She said, Wayne, herein lies the crux. God is there all along. His plan has been there. His justice has been there. Brilliantly for us, his mercy has been there. The thing that is variable is us. Are we going to take this opportunity to choose to take this opportunity? It's really that simple. Choose joy and freedom offered in believing in our glorious and good God who made a way through his son. Close quote. How can people like like Cindy Sharp and Tim Hansel and Habakkuk and you and, 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 and I, how can we exult and rejoice in adversity? Because God gives himself. Because God gives restoration and because God guides every person to eliminate our own personal idolatries. Look again at verse 19. Now, scholars are very divided on this. Uh, Hind's feet on high places is how it used to be written in most of the old translations. Uh, what, What is meant by the feet of a deer enabled to walk on the mountain heights? What's meant by that? There's two possibilities. Some think that Habakkuk means he can skip along on the rocky places with the sure footedness of a deer. He can, he can skip along through the rocky parts of his life with the sure-footedness of mountain deer. Others think that, that it means that Habakkuk can trample down his idolatries. When, when your text says mountain places or, or translates as high places, these are the spots where, this is really gross, but these are the spots where Judah committed horrible idolatry, very nasty, nasty idolatry. Up on these high rocky places, they would build these wooden structures and they would offer all these, all these plant offerings and, and, and even meat offerings that were done for this horrible set of Baal ceremonies. A deer's cloven hooves would have destroyed all those structures that they built there and all those offerings. Have you ever had a deer stomp through your garden? Uh, those of you that have lived in further south in Texas, you, you know how destructive deer's feet can be. So which is it? Is the ability to skip over the rocky places in life or the capacity to tear down one's own idols? I think, I think it could possibly be a pit of each. And I'm, not, I'm really not dodging the question. But each of these has already occurred in the book. Think about it. Habakkuk has torn down his idol of self-righteousness something that desperately needs to happen for so many of us in our society. He started out so, give me justice, and he ends up, whoa, I need mercy. And he tears down that self-righteousness and learns. That's a big part of the book. We'd be wise to do the same. Habakkuk also has skipped over some really rocky ground. 
He is looking at the absolute collapse of his civilization, and yet his, his vision is so filled with Yahweh, who is fully God and works fully good, that the problems assume a different aspect to him. He really does fly over them. Steve Mosley put it this way. Uh, he said, God is bigger than your problems. Don't go on and on moaning about how terrible your situation is and begging God for his help. Instead, go on and on about how wonderful God is and express confidence in his ability to help you. In other words, though the fig tree does not bud and there's no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on the mountain heights. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself. I, I pray for my, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I ask you to enable us to tear down our ridiculous idolatries that are almost always, for us at least, founded in self. And let us find the freedom and the joy of learning at your feet. And Father, I pray that we will skip over the rocky places in life because we have perspective. You let, us, you let us see what you've done in the past, how you're in the boat with us in the present, and what you will do in the future. And I pray that changes us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.